Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty, and this is Talking Design uh, 2018, episode number 25. In this episode, we're I'm talking to Jeremy Maver, who's a collector of mid-century Australian furniture and objects, and uh, he's recently um, just curated uh, quite an impressive exhibition at the Ian Potter um, at Melbourne University with uh, uh, Dean Keep. So, welcome to the program. Thanks, Stephen. Um, look, this is interesting because uh, Clement Meadmore is a fascinating man. Uh, he really went on to have worldwide exposure in the 50s, 60s, and yet, really, he hasn't surfaced greatly on the Australian scene. Would you agree with that? Oh, ab- absolutely, I would agree with that. And Why I, I, is that? Well, I think, like many artists, he he went on to have this moment in in 1966 where he uh, he created the first of his uh, mature sculptural works. Let's call it the embryonic phase of of that mature practice, and that was what he became known for. And I suppose, like many artists they then go back and edit their history a little and like to be known for the best of their work. And he didn't really rate his furniture or his industrial design or the sculpture that came before that point. So I think partly it's due to a little bit of editing. But on his part, that's right. Uh, But also, too, there wasn't really a, a lot known about Meadmore and his furniture, aside from the iconic chord chair which everyone seems to know a lot about because other like unlike some designers like grant featherstone who have had a huge amount of publicity uh in the last decade and even beyond um clement made more you know people wouldn't even know who he is well well that's right you know really um if you ask the average person uh and his prices you could pick up his furniture very cheaply because no one even knew what it was um, so how does it? How does the the how does it start? How does the the snowball start? That you know Clement Meadmore really starts to gain momentum. What were some of the key things pri- prior to this exhibition that really started people thinking about it? Was it the NGV or was it other sources? Who 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 was the kind of the saviour for Clement Meadmore? Oh. Uh, I- in some respects, I suppose it was us. When, you know, ten years ago when we began the project, as you say, there was very little known about him, and that was partly why we started to do our own research. We had bought some of the corded furniture for ourselves and had got visited dealers who who said that they knew quite a bit and, and seemed to have a bit of knowledge around. Uh, around the furniture but we really wanted to know more and there just wasn't anything out there so that really puts puts it back on you to kind of do that research what were some of the early pieces you found from Meadmore that really excited you so well obviously the cord chair which is his iconic chair designed in 1951 that was the first of his designs but the second piece that we purchased was the the corded reclining chair which uh, we both say is a sculpture that you sit in. It's a, it's a, just a stunning piece of furniture. That's part of your own collection. That's part of our own collection. So uh, it's quite low. So it's not, you know, I suppose in 1950 when people were a little shorter, 
it was easy enough to get in and out of. Not so much now. <laughs> I'm I'm quite short, so I don't I don't have a problem. Uh, but Dean's over six foot, so it's for people who are taller, it's a little harder to get in and out of. Do you, Dean, um, um, Jeremy? Do you leave it as a piece of sculpture in the room, or are people actually allowed to sit on it, or you just say no? That's taboo. We we can't allow people to sit on a precious sculpture slash seat well the cord the cord is uh coming apart so we've left it in completely original condition and so really it's not you can't actually sit in it if the cord was in great great nick uh, we might allow the occasional uh, dalliance but uh, for the most part it's it's kept as a sculptural work and I suppose that's the interesting thing about his furniture is that it's seen that way. How do you know when you see an original Clement Meadmore and something that's been copied? Did he sign his work or do you kind of go through this very intense investigation where you... No, well, he didn't sign his work. Often his earlier work is pretty shoddy. Uh, looks great, but the welds on, on the furniture aren't always... They aren't of a factory standard. Uh, and so uh, a lot of we have to remember that most of that early furniture was handmade and in small quantities I think he had a little studio in Burwood Road Hawthorne he did yeah yeah so originally originally it was set up as an outpost of his father's model shop and he and his brother very briefly ran uh, a model store in uh, 1950 in in the shop and they lived he and his wife Enid lived upstairs in the flat and that venture was quite unsuccessful. So by 1951, he had registered a business and advertised his services as an industrial designer uh, from that shop front. And there was a small range of furniture that was exhibited in the shop windows and people would go to the shop. They could buy directly from him in that really early, early period. So around 1951, Robin Boyd included his furniture in the Sunshine House, which was one of his exhibition homes. And that really was, that was really that moment where... It was a catalyst. Boyd, it was. You know, Boyd, Boyd, even at that time, as early, early as 51, was a, a, a tastemaker, social commentator, and it really gave him this, gave Clem, Meadmore, um, the stamp of, of approval and so very quickly he that, that early furniture was picked up by you know people like Francis Burke and textile um, designer yeah she had a she had her new design store so she sold fabric but she also mm-hmm. sold furniture and and uh, you know kitchen alia things that she deemed were of, of great design what's the what you know if I said to you look you, you know what's the most important piece in your collection that you have at the moment that is it that reclining cord chair or are there other pieces you've come across since that you just think are so special that's that's such a hard question to answer it's so it's so deeply <laughs> it's su- such a deeply kind of personal uh connection that you have to these objects and for, and for different reasons um, we have for example we have some uh, of the fabric that he did for the Caldor Seckers um, artist series project and one of the pieces is in a blue colourway that's never been seen before and so is quite rare so there are pieces that are really rare and you love them because um, it went off and you feel really privileged to be the custodians of them. And where do you find them, Jeremy? Where, you know, what's the most unlikely place you found Clement Meadmore? eBay. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, so a lot a lot of it has come from eBay and and some from from auction. Some of it has been hunch. So uh, Dean, many years ago, Dean uh, bought a set of four cafe chairs marked as cafe chairs in the weekly auction at Joel's, and he just felt there was something in it. Those the design and the look and the timber just spoke to him and he he bought them I don't think they cost him very much maybe a couple of hundred dollars uh, and they turned out to be gallery A chairs and in fact the chairs that were used in in the gallery as seating for gallery A in 1959 designed by by Clem and manufactured so, by Joy um when was the idea when did it start the idea for an exhibition you worked with at uh, the Empire Centre you worked with uh Parcel Parallel, sorry, Parallel Practice, which yep. is Alan Pert and Danika uh, Kumakai, Kumakari? K- Kumaheri. Kumaheri. Yeah. yeah. Third time, right? Kumaheri. Yeah. When did that exi- exhibition, when did the seed start for that one? It's on till the 3rd of March. That's but when, right. But when did it start? When was... Because you could have just kept enjoying the, the whole package yourself. Well, inviting well, that's friends right. and family round to your own little gallery at home. That's right. Yeah, and in fact, fa- friends and family often comment that it's like a furniture shop. But we'll put that to one side. Um, probably about look, we uh, Dean and I were awarded um, a state library of Victoria fellowship in 2016. So I suppose, I suppose that cemented the project as being a bit more serious than we had originally imagined. Certainly when we began doing the interviews uh, in 2011, the first interview was done. With? It was done with Neville Sherburn, who was the owner of Swaggy Records and a a friend of, of Clem's. They met at Melbourne Technical College in 1949 and were connected through jazz circles. So it started with that interview and then we purchased a table that had been gifted to um, the owner of a Boyd home by Robin Boyd and and your, your thinking does shift. You start to think that perhaps these objects are a bit more significant than just a, a table. You know, we really liked Meadmore and we'd been starting to acquire the furniture but uh, when you when you put something into the collection that's culturally significant like that, it adds a layer of responsibility that perhaps uh, wasn't there before, or certainly that you weren't thinking about. And so uh, we started doing interviews and and then realised that actually no one else was doing this research and that that it really, you know, it was up to us to, to do it. It was important to do. No one had done it. Very little was known about Meadmore, as you were pointing out earlier. And so we just began the project of collecting interviews and doing research, certainly never with the intention of putting on an exhibition. But I think in 2016, we started to think that... It was worthy. That, that Yes, it was worthy, necessary, that, that the research and all of the knowledge that we'd acquired had to amount to something significant and to really uh, address that gap that was there the um i mean the if you um those who go to the 
Ian Potter, and I recommend you go before the 3rd of March when it closes. Uh, a wonderful array of uh, not just furniture, but um, uh, lighting, extraordinary lighting, um, tables, lamps. I mean, how would you describe his signature? Often he uses steel. That's right. And very raw. It's very. He really reduces things to the very essential. That's right. There's not yeah. a lot of superfluous decoration there. No, very little. It's 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 quite Sculpture. hard-edged. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's what yeah. he ended up doing. Yeah. Well, in 1951, when he welded up that first corded chair, he was thinking about Mondrian. We, we know that Mondrian was uh, a big influence in his practice, both in his industrial design practice and then in his sculptural practice and the way that he thought about line and and space, planes in space. So um, the that that sort of shift between art and then translating that into furniture, where he was thinking about horizontal and vertical lines and planes, I suppose necess- necessitated quite a minimalist mm. uh, look. So and 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 clearly that was something that he responded to because it it when you go and you see the exhibition, and you look from date order from the the early furniture to the later furniture, there is a clear reductive language that's there through all of the work. And tell me about the murals because they're pretty special. The murals that you've got, they're, yeah, they're amazing. So they were um, they were painted by Len French. Leonard French, yes, yep, who sorry. did the stained... Oh, no, Len, Leonard. Yeah. I never got to know him, but um, he's responsible for the stained glass ceiling at the National Gallery of Victoria. That's right, yeah. So in, in 1955, again through the, the jazz connections that, that Clem had, he was asked by uh, Ian Nicolades to design the legend Espresso and, and Milk Bar at the time, it was the Anglo-American... What was his company. name? E- Eon Nicolades. Nicolades. Yeah, Nicolades. Okay. Yeah. So he had inherited a family business, the Anglo-American Cafe, and one night after a jazz gig, took Clem to the store and said, you know, I, I want to renovate it. What do you think? And Clem said, yeah, let's let's do it. And it was in the lead-up to the Melbourne Olympics. So Melbourne was going through this real change, modernisation and change ready for for the Olympics in in the following year. And so Clem did the the, the total interior. It was that Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah, it's German. Which I, I always find difficult to say. But the holistic approach. The, the to- total interior. So from the floors to the chairs to the lighting to the to the counters, and he then engaged Len French to uh, to create an artwork for um, for the cafe, and the result was the Sinbad paintings, which is it's quite an impressive work piece of work. Mm-hmm. And within that is the the art uh, the um, the boat the motif that was then used for the logo. Uh, he then welded up that great sculpture at the top of the stairs that you yes. see in the exhibition. And the mural was the length of the of the bar. So, and what happened to the mural after the cafe closed? Was it just put into storage? Who discovered it? Well, it was 
it was in uh, that in Eon Nicolardi's collection, and he donated it to the La Trobe Art Institute. So it's actually in their collection, and as I understand it, in their student cafe. <laughs> so it's it's being used in in a similar, similar context. Yep. So, and look, I think that's one of the really important things about this exhibition is that the majority of the of the pieces that are exhibited come from private co- collections. They're pieces that ordinarily you won't see, with the exception of uh, the Delure table, which was loaned from the National Gallery of Victoria. There's a, a couple of Erica McGilchrist um, works with Meadmore frames from Heidi, and also the the mural, as we've discussed, from Latrobe. So we were... It was fantastic working with the collectors, but also these institutions that, you know, when they heard about the project, they were on board straight away. And, you know, I'd had some conversations and emailed people and they got back, you know, within a day, two days, and were really enthusiastic about the project and really wanted to be involved. So it's been really, it's been really enjoyable for us to enjoy that level of support. I mean, when Clement hit the big time in America with his sculpture and he mm. came back to Australia, uh, was already probably, what, 70s, 80s? Oh, you're testing my memory now. I think the first time he came back was maybe in the 90s. Oh, that late? Yeah. I, don't quote and, me on that. Yeah. And as he kind of... You know, what happened when he came back? I mean, did... After he had all that success in America, did Australians all of a sudden realise, God, we were stupid, we let one go, or did he just continue battling till the end of his career? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know that he was received quite in the way that you describe. He he did visit a couple of the public institutions, and and they asked him lots of questions about furniture and what he'd made and what he didn't make and didn't really reference the large-scale public works that he was well known for at that time. So I think the thing is is that in 1963, Clem left because he felt he was being ignored by Australians, both in Melbourne and Sydney. He was selling very little work. His furniture had been copied. It had been the subject of court cases that he had lost on technicalities that he shouldn't have. Uh, he, he was bankrupt in 1958. So he had a really rough time in mm. Australia and particularly around his design work. He then goes to America and becomes one of the 20th century's greatest sculptors and then comes back for a visit and people want to talk to him about his furniture. And he was really annoyed when he left, but he was really annoyed when he came back. Because <laughs> he thought, I'm not going to talk about that. that it must, and it must have been terribly insulting, yeah. terribly insulting. And I just don't think we, I just don't think we really got it. They got it in, they got it in America. Yeah. They got it in Japan. He, he's, and his work now, his sculpture sells for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, on his absolutely. Big name. That's did, right. um, Jeremy, did you manage to talk to any of the family descendants? Uh, the Meadmore family descendants before the exhibition was put up, and what was their reaction? So we've interviewed we've interviewed Clem's remaining siblings. We've interviewed uh, his son and his nephew. 
So we've enjoyed a lot of support from the family who've been really enthusiastic about the project and have loaned to the exhibition. So yeah, we've we've had a lot of interaction with the family, but also with friends from the time. And, and that's actually one of the uh, one of the enjoyable parts of doing the research is you get to go out and meet all the, all these amazing people in their eighties and nineties who who were part of that very small design art architecture bohemian scene in the fifties who've lived extraordinary lives and you you get to go out and that's you know, amazing you take cake you sit and have coffee sometimes there's wine. Mm. And you just sit and, and have a bit of a chin wag, yeah. and it's just a really f- a fantastic uh, project. It's just lovely that you've been able to recognise, and others around you have been able to recognise, you know, Clement Mead's Moore's worth, because really he is a great talent, and, you know, Melbourne was very lucky to have him, even if it was for a brief period. So, Absolutely, yeah. Um, what was probably the most frustrating thing about the exhibition in terms of putting it together? Was it just trying to decide which pieces had to be left in and which pieces had to be left out? I mean, that's often a curator's dilemma. Well, look, at the beginning of the process, we we were looking at only the two downstairs galleries. And so when we looked at the pieces that we had, we worked out pretty quickly that we needed to expand... Uh, the it, the Enough. show, so uh, we now occupy five galleries, and look, the, the Ian Potter staff were really supportive of that of that change. Although it was obviously it wasn't initially what we had been planning. Uh, when they saw the the number of exhibits and uh, how that might work in the space that was uh, originally allotted, uh, they they were on board with expanding the show so we we actually got to include the, all of the furniture and exhibits that we wanted to i think the most frustrating thing was trying to put on a survey and knowing that there were missing designs out there that we had photos of that we've never been able to locate so that's really frustrating the other frustrating thing i think is uh, is that you always feel like you're racing against time with this kind of research. So people unfortunately pass away and you you hear of someone that you need to interview through someone you've interviewed and they put late. you in touch and it and it's too late. And the other thing too is that through through this process we've we've lost a couple of the people that we interviewed that we would have dearly loved to have been able to see it. So you know the great graphic designer Max Robinson, who was a, a friend of, of Clem's, who we interviewed, died at the beginning of the year, and Neil Clearahan mm. last year, and Neville Sherburn, you know, several years um, earlier. So, you know, there's, al- there's always a sense that it would have been nice for them to be able to, to see it, to see... Let's to see their their component or their part of what they've given you coming to fruition, mm-hmm. because these things are a collaboration. It's mm-hmm. not. It's never just Dean and I. It's yeah. you know we do we carry the stories of all of those people with yeah. us, including Clem's. 
Yeah, well, look, well done, um, Jeremy. I mean, I think it's a great exhibition. It's terrific that it's finally surfaced. And um, it is a shame, in a sense, that Clement Meadmore is only surfacing now because, really, mm. he should have been surfacing already in the 90s. Absolutely. Um, and it's, um, but, look, thanks again. It's at the Ian Potter um, Gallery at Melbourne University till the 3rd of March. And it's called um, Clement Meadmore, The Art of Mid-Century design and yeah design that's it yeah yeah that's right uh, look thanks again um jeremy and um it's a great show and i think it's a reminder that you don't take things for granted absolutely you really don't no. and um, thank you for coming in thanks Stephen. pleasure this has been talking design 2018 recorded at rmit university in melbourne